You're listening to The Feast, where we explore the great meals that made history. I'm your host, Laura Carlson. Now, I've been tempted to start calling these last few episodes The Feast's Celebration of the Midwest. Well, of course, we started out with great beer history in Chicago, then traveled north to Wisconsin to learn about hop picking, stuck around in the great cheese state to find out about supper clubs, and now, well, on this episode, we're headed down to the great state of Ohio. Dayton, Ohio, to be specific. You see, at the Beer Culture Summit, you know, that conference we attended back in Chicago in October, we learned about an American brewery dedicated exclusively to historical brewing, making ales like most of the country hasn't tasted since the 1850s. Well, understandably, we had to go. So one chilly, early December day in 2019, we found ourselves on the outskirts of Dayton, searching for a historical brewery and listening to, of all things, bells. Lots of bells. Welcome to Carillon Brewing Company. Carillon is a fully functioning brewery and restaurant located in what is known as Carillon Historical Park, a sprawling complex dedicated to telling the history of Dayton and, of course, Ohio. Within the park, you can find the actual 1905 plane flown by the Wright brothers, who, of course, lived and worked nearby. You can see the oldest existing American-built locomotive. You can also visit an entire room full of historical cash registers. And I mean it's a lot of historical cash registers. But I wasn't there for them, nor for planes, nor for trains. I was there for beer. Hi. Um, I'm Laura. I'm looking for Kyle. Oh, yeah. Come on around. Great. I was there to learn more about Carillon Brewing Company. How exactly a modern, fully functioning brewery could brew only according to methods and according to most recipes developed over 150 years ago. And as I found out, brewing beer according to those specifications? Well, it takes a lot of barrels, a few unusual ingredients, and most importantly, a heck of a big fire. Thankfully, I had two of Carillon's top brewers to explain what it meant exactly to brew according to methods a few centuries old. I am Kyle Spears. I'm the head brewer at Carillon Brewing Company. I work in the education department for Carillon Historical Park, which uh, houses Carillon Brewing Company. Uh, I'm Dan Laro. I'm the assistant brewer here at Carillon, and I've been here for three years, and I'm also part of the education department Yeah, here. so Carillon Historical Park um, is a 65-acre, at this point is a 65-acre, um, kind of used to be an open-air museum, um, old buildings that had been collected and 
brought here to be preserved. Um, the origin of it was uh, was starts with the bell tower, which is the namesake of Carillon Historical Park. So Carillon, our Carillon is an open air bell tower, um, built uh, completed in 1942 um, in the Art Deco style, and it was actually designed by the same architecture firm that did Rockefeller Center in New York City. Um, the grounds around Carillon Park were created by the Olmsted Brothers firm, that of course were known for uh, Central Park in New York City. So all of this was made possible by donation from a man named Edward Deeds and his wife, Edith, who, among many other things, um, Edward Deeds ran National Cash Register Company, which has its origins here in Dayton, started here. He helped a man named Charles F. Kettering invent the self-starter for the automobile and then created the Dayton Engineering Laboratories Company, or Delco, with the success of that invention. So Edward Deeds had a lot of money um, and had always lived in Dayton and the had traveled to Belgium many times, um, and his wife Edith fell in love with Carillon Bell Tower, with the bell towers in Belgium, um, and decided she wanted to gift one to the city of Dayton. So they created the bell tower in 1942. A little thing called World War II happened, so they couldn't open their historical museum um, or Carillon Historical Park until 1950. So the park itself was open to the public in 1950, initially aimed at celebrating Dayton's contributions to transportation history. So um, the kind of crown jewel of our collection at Carillon historical park, aside from the brewery, if I'm being biased, but um, is the uh, is an original Wright Flyer airplane. It's the 1905 Wright Flyer III. Um, it was gifted to the park by Orville Wright himself, who was very good friends with Edward Deeds. The Wright brothers, of course, are from Dayton, where they lived here. And once they became immensely successful with their invention of the airplane, they stayed in Dayton as well. Um, so there's a lot to see here at Carillon Park, but it all started in 1950, um, aimed at celebrating the self-starter invention that Edward Deeds and Charles Kettering created, and eventually kind of morphed into a museum talking about all of Dayton's history um, since 1796 when it was founded. Okay, wow. So there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff. Yes. Okay, <laughs> wow. To digest everything properly, it was clear we were going to need a tour. Kyle and Dan walked me around the brewery, explaining the overall mission of the park and how the brewing company fits into telling the story of not only Dayton, but Ohio, and its connections to manufacturing, transportation, beer history, but also, of course, the history of immigration in the area. We also, of course, had to talk about the brewery itself, which, as I mentioned, at its heart is one giant fire. This multi-story brick fireplace essentially takes up one entire side of the Carillon Brewing Company building, in full view of the rest of the restaurant. Now, if you're having trouble imagining this, you're going to want to check out some of the pictures we put up on our website at thefeastpodcast.org to appreciate it in full. But if you haven't had a chance to check them out yet, imagine a giant multi-story brick fireplace with a giant fire at the bottom level, and yet another fire going on up top. Now, needless to say, this giant fireplace needs constant attention. A fire essentially has to be going at all times to keep the brewery operational. And well, it's a full-time job. So this thing is kind of crazy, but we basically, we opened up in August of 2014. Um, 
as part of essentially just a, a bigger living history exhibit for the larger park of Carolina Historical Park. We had not talked about the 1850s in Dayton and other areas of the park, so that was one of the reasons why we chose the year 1850 to replicate here in the brewery. And the other reason was that we, we hadn't told the story of German immigration in Dayton. So Dayton was kind of a changing city in the 1850s. We had new transportation routes that were opening up. Um, the Miami Erie Canal, which runs right through Carolina Historical Park, or would have run through there when it was active, um, was at its height by the 1850s in Dayton. Um, in the later 1850s, the railroad finally came into town. So you start to see industrialization coming into this region. Um, prior to that, beer was being brewed and has been brewed for 10,000 years. Um, but <laughs> beer wasn't being made on a commercial scale in the city of Dayton in the 1850s, or until the 1850s. Prior to that, most of the beer was being brewed at home by the housewife. Um, just the, a chore like any other. Um, and it was a, a, essentially a safer source of hydration than the drinking water was often um, as a source of nutrition, so calorically um, source of nutrition. And the finished beer product is actually a fairly sterile product. So once it's produced, it actually, it, nothing really wants to live in it that's going to harm you or make you sick. So, so beer is important. But by the 1850s, um, you start to see these kind of purpose-built industrial commercial brewing setups um, coming up. And so we replicated this building off of those early gravity-fed industrial breweries. Um, so what we're standing in is our brew house right now, which we're looking at a giant three-tiered um, brick fireplace that actually it's not just one single heat source it has four different fire boxes in it three of which heat parts of the brewing process one of which is a wood-fired oven that we do our spent grain sourdough bread baking in about three or four days a week um so dan is up there right now trying to get the fire going so we can go upstairs and i'll show you kind of yeah. break it down um, everything here gets fermented in american white oak barrels um, so that makes this a little bit unique compared to a modern brewery which is using stainless steel and our brew kettles are copper Handmade in Ohio um, by a company called D. Picking and Sons. Um, so we had to have those conditions because they're fairly large. We have three kettles up here. So kind of breaking down the brewing process. We're essentially heating up water, taking malted grains, grains that have been sprouted and then dried, um, trying to get the starches and the enzymes generated that can break down starch into sugar. By the malting process, we take those grains and mill them in a stone mill here on site, um, bring them up to the to the top of the fireplace, and we take our hot water and mix it with the grains. Steep them for about an hour and break those starches inside the grains, those complex sugars, down into simple sugars, and then we'll transfer them into a third kettle, um, which is directly heated by fire that will be our boil kettle. So once we start boiling, the wort is a liquid that will become beer, that sugary liquid from the grain. Um, we add hops to it. Um, for most recipes, we can add other ingredients like... In our case, we do a coriander ale that has coriander seed and chili pepper. Um, we do a squash ale that has butternut squash added to it. Um, so we, we can do a lot of different things in the boil in terms of getting flavor into the beer. Um, of course, boiling is what made beer safe to drink than plain water. Once we're done with that, we'll cool the liquid down through a big cooling coil, and then we'll ultimately end up in our barrels or, or wood barrels. So, so it's a big process, but we have these three giant copper kettles. One's 100 gallons. Um, our mash tun, <laughs> excuse me, is not directly heated but it is surrounded by wood, so it's insulated, so it kind of holds that heat during the mash process. Um, and then our boil kettle is directly heated as well. So. Can I ask a question? Sure. You mentioned that it's hand milling grain. Who gets the horrible job of hand <laughs> so milling So that's evolved a little bit. Um, in the beginning, for the first about three years, we did have a mill that, um, it's kind of funny, it was, a, it was a steel roller mill, which is a little bit more modern, but housed in a kind of a historic-looking setup. 
Um, and that was hand cranked. So we actually were hand cranking 150 pounds of grain every day for a brewing process. That's like an intern's um, job. <laughs> it, yes, exactly. So it's volunteers. So there's three of us that get paid to do this full time. Um, and then we have about 12 uh, men and women who actually come in and help us brew. So those volunteers are awesome and they help us do a lot of that kind of grunt work. Um, but we have since um, installed a stone mill in here, which is a little bit more appropriate to the 1850s. However, that stone mill um, was designed to be hand cranked. We handmade the gears. Actually, our president and CEO built that. He's a pretty skilled woodworker. And with the gearing ratio, we found that the momentum of those large stones would actually kept the crank arm flailing on its own for about 15 minutes. So it was a little bit unsafe to use. So right now we have a stone mill that's unfortunately powered by electricity. So um, it's kind of a, a mishmash. So every once in a while we have to kind of put a little bit more modern twist on things just to keep things a little bit safer. But we'll haul up about anywhere between 100 and 150 pounds for, per batch. Um, and we're a two-barrel system. So we, we make about, all things said and done, about 45 gallons of finished beer wow. with okay. one batch. So Yeah. And, I mean, as far as your, your other ingredients, I mean, hops, obviously, classic ingredient. Um, where are you sourcing your hops from? So we get them from all over. Um, unfortunately, still, mo- the majority of hops that are used for the brewing industry in America are grown on the West Coast. So you're the Yakima Valley and Willamette Valley, places like that, over in Oregon and Washington. And I'm just um, interested, you know, from the 19th century perspective, you know, brewers who are working in Ohio or Dayton right. in 1850 – would they been getting hops from Ohio? Or would they have been getting them from Wisconsin or West Coast? Yeah, or? right. So they, they were growing hops in Ohio for sure. So in, in the 1850s, um, it was kind of the opposite from now we get them from the West Coast. In the 1850s, New York State, upstate New York, kind of in the Cooperstown area, was one of the was the biggest hop growing region for America. Wisconsin, by the 1860s, was a huge hop growing region as well. Um, Ohio did have a significant hop culture as well. Brewers would have been getting hops locally if they could, but you also, like we talked about earlier, with the industrialization of brewing, because of those transportation routes, you could get hops from all over the place. Um, A lot of brewers were importing hops from Europe, from Germany and England, so kind of prized hops like Hollertau and East Kent Goldings came from um, overseas. And so they would ship them and they would bring them in um, through those transportation routes. So they could get them from all over the place. Yeah, so I mean, it was still a globalized product. I mean, to a certain extent. Yep, exactly. Um, and then, you know, your your coriander seed, and then you mentioned butternut squash. Mm-hmm. Kind of what, what brought you to those ingredients? Were they historically inspired, I imagine? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So we, we spent about a year doing research prior to this facility being open um, just to figure out what we should be brewing, how to brew it, what equipment we needed, what we needed to build, all those things. And so we were, do, we're talking about the year 1850 here, which is kind of the very beginning of industrialization for brewing in Dayton. We also, we kind of have one foot in that early industrial style, which would have been a little bit beers that we're more used to today or kind of more commercial beers that don't have all those crazy ingredients in them. And then one foot back in the kind of 1830s housewife brewing method. So we find a lot of these recipes, like the coriander ale came from a, a, a receipt book, a recipe book um, from the 1830s that was published in Cincinnati, Ohio. And it was basically a manual for how to raise a family. It's called receipts, it's called receipts for the husbandman and housewife um, from Cincinnati. There's a chapter of, of in the book of brewing this is an essential part of you know raising a family um, and at that time in the 1830s and we found listed under 
the brewery section another way to make ale. So there wasn't even a name for it, but it just described taking um, a bushel of grain and a certain amount of water, heating it up, boiling it to a color, which is kind of a funny, um, whatever that means. So that's kind of up for interpretation. They knew what that meant back then. And then it called for coriander seed and capsica, um, which seem like exotic ingredients. And I think a lot of people mistakenly think that on the frontier or wherever, people just didn't have anything. But when, by the 1830s, they had the canal system. So they could bring in pretty much anything they wanted to get. So coriander seed would have been available. They would have been growing cilantro in, the, in their gardens as well. So they could have collected their own coriander seeds so um chili pepper capsicas chili pepper so they were bringing those in yeah. um, and eventually growing them too so and i imagine butternut squash would be something similar like right. in your garden yep exactly or or even in the middle of the winter if you didn't have enough grain on hand sometimes these kind of pumpkin ales or squash ales even potato or beet beer we do a beet ale here as well um, in january those are representative of beers that you were brewing when you run out of grain um, so you're searching for other starchy fermentable sources um, and if you had grown squash, um, harvested it in the fall, you keep it in your root cellar and you can take it out and cut it up and brew with it. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So pumpkin ale nowadays, um, basically just pumpkin spice flavored beer. Um, but it does have origins and kind of early brewing, yeah. um, in America. So as another kind of ingredient that is at hand, yeah. um, especially right. in the winter. Yeah, yeah. Brew with whatever you want. We found recipes for pea shell beer. Um, so anything you can think of that has some type of sugar source or starch source, you can brew with it. You can make alcohol with it. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. How tricky, I mean, we, uh, we're here kind of right next to one of the fires. <laughs> right. How, I imagine, keeping this fire going, keeping this fire at a constant or as constant as you can get right. temperature for brewing is a bit of a... Have a skill to be developed? <laughs> it is, for sure. I mean, we've been open for, we've been brewing for five years on this setup. Um, we make the fire today differently than we did last week. So we are constantly learning. Dan can attest to it. He's working on trying to get this started right now. We essentially keep our main hearth going all the time. Excuse me, it doesn't always have flame in it, but it always has hot embers. So we can take those embers this morning, turn over the cold ash that's on top, get those embers kind of reignited. Um, throw some kindling on it and we can get that fire going again. Once that main hearth is going, we take coals from that hearth, carry them upstairs and put them in this firebox to heat up our hot water kettle or hot liquor ton. The fire building, I think to me, looking back over the five years, and I think Dan would agree, is has been the biggest learning curve. When we first opened, we were building fires, um, clearing out the ash box every night because we, we, when you have a fireplace at home, you like to keep it clean, right? We yeah. don't really think of... A practical working fire does not look like your fireplace at home. So over time, we let the ash kind of build up in the fireboxes um, to a certain extent, which just brings that fire even closer to the bottom of the kettle that it's heating. So that cuts time down. In the beginning, when we were clearing those out, we were trying to start fires. It it took us 13 hours to brew a batch of beer. Um, So we're starting at 9 in the morning and finishing up at 11, 12 at night. So it's long, long days, and it was just because of the fire. We just weren't as good at building fires and figuring out how to do that more efficiently. Um, So over time, we can now brew pretty much as fast as any modern brewery. So we can operate almost on the same schedule that um, a modern brewery does, as long as we have decent firewood. And whoever's building the fires knows what they're doing a little bit. But um, <laughs> but that changes. Like I said, we evolve every every other week. We find some new way to, to do it a little bit faster, a little bit better, which is exactly, I think, what would have been going on in the 1850s in these early industrial breweries. You know, they kind of start off not really knowing exactly what to do and then just kind of learn as they go. Yeah. And, I mean, they probably had a bit of an advantage because they were making fires, I mean, just for the home use. True. Yeah. Every single day. Right. So um, it's a skill we just don't have anymore. Yeah. Um, 
so yeah, having those kind of practical cooking fires and things like that um, yeah. are totally different from what we're used to for your Christmas time fireplace at home or whatever. More decorative right. use than anything yep. else exactly. and practical. Because I'd say there's probably like a foot and a, maybe a foot and a half of yeah. like ash least, right there. Yeah. So um, yeah, you can imagine having that much distance in the beginning when we first opened up, just it literally cuts off two and a half hours of the process right there just by letting that ash build up. Um, but yeah, so it's little things like that that, like you mentioned, used to be inherent knowledge that we just you lose over time um, yeah. with, with with new modern technology. Exactly. Like that. So that you can turn on your fireplace with a switch instead of right. anything else, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, so if you were here later in the evening when we're done boiling, we have a, a similar fire set up with the kettle right above the fireplace. Um, we, when we're done, we have to bring it up to a raging boil and continue boiling for an entire hour. Right when we're done boiling, we have to get that liquid to cool down as quickly as possible because once the word starts to cool, it becomes vulnerable to, um, to microbes that are in the air, like wild yeast strains and bacteria strains and things like that. That can affect the quality and the flavor of the beer. So long story short, like you said, we can't turn the switch off to cut the heat. So the only way to get the heat out from underneath the fire is to literally pull the fire out from underneath the kettle. So when we're done with the boil kettle fire, you'll see us um, putting a shovel in there and literally pulling out all the burning logs and any ash that still very much on fire um, and depositing them back into the big main hearth fireplace which is one of the reasons that hearth is so large is so that we can deposit all that burning material back into there yeah. um, so almost reusing the material yeah right again. exactly yeah. so those coals are going to be the ones that will will bank overnight we'll put cold ash on top of when we come in the morning they're still glowing underneath there and we can use those to start the next day's fire so um, yeah you're really going to get a, a sense of importance of the fire um, that <laughs> You know, you kind of see in movies and things like that. You read in books, but you don't really understand it until you start using it every day. So. Yeah. As a need, a necessary skill, vital skill to have right. any of this. Right. Yeah. So we're kind of fire tenders, and then we brew while we're keeping the fires going. <laughs> it's what <laughs> it's it feels like accidentally a lot of the time. happens, right. yeah. <laughs> um, in the downtime. So we split all of our own wood on site and things like that. So, wow. yeah. Wow. Um, so it's a lot of work. Yeah, because, I mean, I, it probably is a little too much to imagine that this is coming from the Carillon Park, the actual wood itself. It did in the beginning. Okay. Um, and that was part of the issue that we realized very quickly when we were having 13-hour brew days that uh, that we didn't have great quality firewood. So we have a ton of wood on site. We're sitting on 65 acres. We have an entire glacial moraine that's part of the site that's covered with trees at this point. Um, a lot of them have fallen. A lot of them are ash trees, which in this area you know, have are diseased from the um, from insects. So a lot of them are falling and it was great source of free firewood, but it takes labor to split all of that firewood and that firewood's not, um, hadn't been dried properly. So it, the wet firewood, it's just, it's terrible to use for brewing. So we now source it, outsource our wood to supply, but then we bring it and we split it down by hand to feed the different fireboxes. So each firebox kind of requires its own size of log and shape of log and things like that to be able to brew efficiently. So. I imagine the fire splitting is, again, kind of entry-level volunteer job. <laughs> it can be for sure, but <laughs> gets you away from the craziness inside sometimes. And then, of course, we have the, the baker kind of standing by. Um, and these are the spent grains you mentioned? Yeah, so okay. we, we utilize the spent grain, the leftover wow. barley grain from the mashing process, um, which is still fairly nutritious. It's a good source of fiber, has flavor. Um, we put that and incorporate it back into, we make crackers with it. 
that gets served in the restaurant. Um, and then also we have bakers like Paul um, who come in three days a week. So we actually baked four days a week last week because we're really busy right now. But these are natural sourdough breads. So we do a whole wheat sourdough spent grain bread that's basically just whole wheat flour, spent barley grain, a little bit of honey, some salt and water. And then most importantly, our 30-year-old sourdough starter culture. So we were lucky enough in the beginning, myself uh, and my predecessor were fumbling around with the bake oven. Wood-fired bake oven is where we cook all the bread and not doing it very successfully, um, pulling out kind of flat, sad loaves of bread that we were using Fleischmann's yeast as a leavening agent for it. Um, We had a guy sitting at the bar and he was watching us do that over a couple days when he was over here visiting. Um, And he he offered to come over and help us. He, He basically said, I'll give you guys two weeks and I'll show you how to do this and I'll give you some of my starter as long as you can keep it alive you can have it. Um, so he trained myself, which I have to admit, I don't really do much of the baking anymore. Um, it's mostly our volunteers, Paul and Tom and Charlie who come in and, uh, kind of a labor of love. So <laughs> gets here at nine in the morning and leaves around three thirty PM. So it's uh, in charge of heating up the wood fired oven, which takes about two uh, to three hours, three and a half yeah. uh, total time, three and a half hours, two um, fires, Two fires, uh, mixing all the dough by hand. Um, of course, it's sourdough, so we have to build up the starter culture the day before. So we bake three days a week. We actually spend probably um, just as much time building up those starter cultures the previous day for the baking. So on a bake day, come in, mix the starter culture with the rest of your flour, and, and do this process of uh, multiple rests and rises and forming the loaves and then Getting them in and out of the oven is probably the biggest challenge. I don't know if all, you can tell me what's what's your experience been. Uh, let's see. I haven't hit anybody yet. Uh, although I have dumped a few loaves, flour changes, or there are just certain things that change, and don't know exactly why. And some uh, of the loaves come out you know, a little bit flat, but yeah, and some of them are uh, puff up very nicely. Uh, just uh, and per batch, I should say. Sure, and it's not. Uh, individual loaves as each batch acts a little bit differently. Wow. And and tell me about this oven. Is it one of these where you put the coals in and basically it is a decreasing heat oven? Yeah, it is. I think a lot of people nowadays can see those kind of Neapolitan pizza ovens where you have these have flames shooting out of it and it's a thousand degrees inside of it. Um, you slide the pizza in underneath the flame. This works in a different way. It's, it's totally sealed off on the inside. So the flue for this fireplace is actually, or this oven, is on the outside, right above the opening. So we do have flames shooting out of the opening while we're heating it, but we'll essentially make kind of like a log cabin style structure right in the opening where there's actually airflow so that we can get the ignition of the that log structure. Um, so we'll light that and then we'll actually slide it all the way into the back of the oven and allow that to burn down to cold. And then we'll build another structure of wood push that back into those existing coals that are in there from the previous fire, let that burn down to coal. And then there's an entire ritual of spreading out all the coals evenly on the brick inside the oven to get that heat to uh, kind of dissipate over the entire, uh, even out over the entire surface of the oven floor. And then we pull those coals out eventually, and then we mop it and brush it. So we brush the ash out and then we mop it with a wet mop, which kind of flash cools that brick so that when you put the bread dough, right on the brick itself it doesn't scorch the dough 
Um, it also brings some, gives some humidity in, in the oven too, which is good for crust development and things like that. So Paul, oftentimes when he's baking, will have a drip pan inside of the oven as well. So, so all the fire comes out, you bake with just the residual heat inside of the oven, but you don't want totally dry heat in there. So you can put a little bit of water in a pan in there so that it can um, create some humidity. And Almost. how long does it take for a loaf about? Paul. Okay. Depends on what temperature the oven actually gets to, and that is a matter of feel. You can sometimes get the denser uh, spent grain a whole week done in a half hour. Sometimes it's more typically 40 to 45 minutes. Sometimes it takes a full hour. Okay, so probably it's about 450, 500 in there, right? But that's... Uh, about what it would be if you're baking in a home oven. So, yes. Okay. okay. That's what we're aiming for, perhaps. Right, okay. but we don't know exactly. Yeah. Uh, sometimes we'll test it by, uh, after we clean out the oven, throw in, scatter a handful of flour, close it up for a count of 20. If the flour has burned, it's a little too hot. We're going to have to wait a few minutes to let the oven cool down a bit. If it doesn't burn, well, we hope that it got hot enough. I'm going to throw in just a little bit of a, a tie-in between the bread making and the brewing. Old recipes often called for using uh, something called barm, B-A-R-M, as a leavening agent, which was thrown off uh, foam uh, at some point in the brewing process, which, of course, is yeast and all the other things that go along with it. Uh, I haven't seen a good definition of exactly when in the brewing process it gets pulled out. I've got my suspicions, but uh, baking and uh, brewing were tied together pretty uh, tightly. After the tour, Kyle, Dan, and I sat down for a more extended chat about how they came to be historical brewers and how exactly someone goes about building a historically accurate 19th century brewery in the middle of Ohio, and beyond that, of course, how to get a good beer out of it. The, the question was whether or not we're going to do this brewing project. We want to replicate the 1850s. Um, we need to do research to figure out, you know, what was being brewed, who was brewing it, what the facility should look like, what kind of equipment we need. We need people to make that equipment. We need people to brew beer. Um, but so do we hire a modern craft brewer um, to do that, a person who has modern brewing experience? And the ultimate decision was that that person would still be having to learn how to split wood and build fires and do everything, kind of go back and unlearn what they knew in a modern sense. And they would always be sort of biased, trying to make a perfect, a quote unquote, in modern terms, perfect beer on old equipment rather than really truly replicating historic beer um, with it, all of its flaws, good or bad, or all of its kind of nuances, good or bad. So the ultimate decision was to hire historians or educators to do that because a large part of the brewery, the, the main focus of it, it's an educational living history exhibit. We just happen to be making beer that we're allowed to sell to the public, which makes us unique in the museum world as well. 
So the, the decision was to hire historians to do that. So initially they hired a woman named Tanya Brock who came over from Muncie, Indiana. She had been working at the Ball, the Ball Family Estate Museum um, in Atrista, and she had experience in um, food preservation. So when you think about beer brewing, it's essentially a way of preserving food as well. So they, they brought her in as a historian, a, an educator, and with some knowledge of food preservation history. Um, and she initially did the bulk of the research to figure out what the place should look like and what we should be doing, set up the educational programming that we would carry out. Um, and then I, and this is where I came in, I had been with Carolyn Park in the education department for, I've been here for about eight years. So the brewery's been open for five years. So about six months into her initial one year of research before we even had a brewery physically built, um, she brought me on full time to implement that. So I come at it, uh, I majored in history in college. I wasn't ever sure I was going to do anything with that degree. Um, and then through a bunch of different things that I tried that I didn't like, I ended up back in Dayton where I grew up um, and knew I wanted to be a, more a part of the city. So I started working for Carillon Park. I'd always loved this place as a kid. Even eight years ago, it was completely different. I think they had like six full-time staff people. Um, we're a lot bigger now. Um, but I was lucky enough to be around at the time that they announced this brewery project. And I was like, wow, I'm, I, I figured out I actually want to use my history degree um, for a living. I loved museum work and loved working in museums. I like like educating in a kind of more less formal manner um, in this kind of museum environment. When the brewery project was announced, I'd also been a huge craft beer geek and fan. Um, if you had asked me in college what my dream job would be, it would have been to be a beer brewer. But even 10 years ago when I graduated, that wasn't really a reality. And so it's a lot different now. But I'll, long story short, when uh, when they announced that there was going to be a brewery inside the museum and they needed people to run that, I, I knew I needed to stick around. So I bugged um, Tanya Brock until she brought me on full time to do that project. So I kind of shifted, in the education department, which I still am, but we're now my, my full time job is um, at the brewery doing the brewing and baking and things like that. That's my story, Dan. Um, <laughs> Mine's much longer. Uh, so uh, I, I'm one of those people that didn't follow a traditional career path or started to and then said this is terrible. Um, so back in 2012, I went back to school. Uh, I got a degree in computer electrical engineering and I said, I, I hate this world and I don't work there anymore. Then I started on history because that's kind of my love. Um, so uh, all the way through my master's and at the, towards the end of finishing my master's, I had one of those fun life events where something on your car breaks and you're like, well, now I'm broke for a month and I, you know, all my finances are not working out. So I was looking for something in the, the historical realm, um, something to get me through. And, uh, and one of the guys who had graduated a year before me was actually working at the brewery. And uh, he said, well, they need, they need some help at the brewery. It's history. It's part-time, et cetera. And I'm like, okay, cool. I got my, cause I was a, a TA and had the scholarship and I had to get approval for it. And they're like, well, you're, you're working at the museum. That's cool. We'll, we'll sign off on it. And it turns out it was for a job as one of the brewers. So yay. So it, you know, came in, interviewed with Kyle. Um, now much to his dismay, he hired me pretty much on the spot. And three years later, I'm still here and you know, full time and I'm the assistant there. So you know, when I first came to Dayton 20 years ago to go to college the first time, I started, I liked craft beer. I grew up in an environment where um, I had been introduced to beer by my dad. He had brewed in the first wave of the home brewers in the 70s. So when I got introduced to beer, it was never, never American stuff. It was kind of the, the better stuff. So like Kyle, I was a craft beer nerd. And when I was home brewing, it was kind of always, man, how do I do this for money? But like he said, 10, 20 years ago, that's not a thing. So then suddenly... I have this opportunity. I'm like, not like him. I'm using my history degree. And oh, by the way, the thing that I always wanted to do, 
I'm now doing. So I, I got lucky. I fell into it. And now I split wood for fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, Dan was refer. Or I, I got a reference for Dan from a guy who I had um, had been working at the museum, was working part time at the brewery, and he decided that he hated brewing. Um, and he was like, I'm not going to be doing this anymore, but I want, I have this guy that I think would be good for it. So Dan's been a great fit um, for the past few years. So yeah, it's been wow. good. Yeah, and, and now basically a PhD in fires. So. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. If that was a thing, I wish, man. <laughs> um, so I'd love to know maybe when the the brewery first started and maybe when you first both um, got involved with it, how were the recipes chosen? I mean, what was the decision like to what beers were you going to brew? And then kind of even today... When you start, like, because I know you have a like a, a Christmas or a holiday beer on mm -hmm. now. What's what's the process of going back and saying what's the next old kind of beer that we're going to brew? Yeah, I mean, it it comes out in multiple ways. We um, in that first year of research, we we looked through lots and lots of um, kind of housewife diaries or cookbooks and journals, um, publications from England and from Germany that it, were both commercial brewing manuals, but also these kind of homebrew style recipes and things like that. So some of it was trying to find actual recipes. If we can't find actual recipes, which um, in terms of commercial brewing aren't all that easy to find because People just kind of threw them out. Prohibition happened. Breweries close. Um, families don't necessarily keep everything. Um, so even when you can find commercial brewing recipes from the period, oftentimes they're written in code um, so that some somebody else can't steal that recipe. So you have to kind of be in the know to be able to decipher that recipe. So it's a challenge. So when we can find an exact recipe, we will try to replicate that if we're confident that it's from this area. So if we can't, we, we try to be inspired by the people who were living in Dayton in the 1850s, which in our case are English, Irish, um, and then eventually many German and Eastern European immigrants. Um, so we look at the cultural um, kind of history of this region, and then also look at transportation routes to figure out what was shipping logs and things like that to figure out what materials were being brought into the city of Dayton and what was being grown here and things like that. So we try to restrict ourselves style-wise to recipes that were being brewed by certain cultures um, that were living in Dayton and also ingredients that would have been available at that time. And we talked a little bit about kind of the coriander seed, the butternut squash, things mm -hmm. that brewers of the 19th century would have had to hand right. um, if they didn't have let's say, the more traditional ingredients that we're familiar with today. Um, and so when you find a, a recipe that you're interested in trying and you think is a good fit um, for Carillon, what's the, what's the experimental process between saying this looks like a great recipe that we think has enough specification that we can follow it, and also, you know, what's the journey then to someone being able to taste it in your tasting room? Yeah, and you know, we jump in both feet. Yeah, um, we don't do a lot of test batching here, yeah, in all honesty. Um, because they're not going to be test batching back then either. You know, they don't, they're, you go to a modern brewery, they're going to have a pilot system that's like five or six barrels, which is twice what we have, or, you know, they're going to test it and test it and scale it up. And they're not doing that in 1850. Um, so, you know, if they have an idea, they're, they're just going to jump in both feet. And you can see that in some of the, some of the logs that you can find or some of the commentary, like, oh, I'm changing this or I'm changing that. We ran into someone up in Chicago. Uh, from a brewery called Team Wagner, who's reviving his old family brand. And he was he was literally talking about, you know, as they went, the quality control notes, they're talking about just changing things from batch to batch. Um, so we just did a Lichtenheiner with a, a local Cicerone. And it was basically talk about it for a couple of weeks, rough it out, sit down one day over about an hour, hour and a half, 
<clears throat> put together a recipe and then two weeks later just jump in and do it. So um, we do pull heavily from, again, the historic research, uh, resources that we have available to us. So, you know, one of the things that one of the local brewers has said over at Warpwing was that, you know, they don't really test batch a whole bunch. You just, you, you get to a point where you know your system and you know how things work and, and you can get it roughly what you want, even if it's not perfect that first time, which nothing we do is ever going to be perfect that first time mm-hmm. or the second time or third time. <clears throat> but, you you know, you just get that confidence. And you understand. It's like building the fire. You start to understand how the system works and you just jump in and do it. So, yeah, other than the research and, and talking about the stuff and, and making sure that it fits within the parameters of what we're doing or what we're trying to accomplish here, just jump and go. Yeah, I mean, with the Lichtenhainer, which is this kind of obscure beer style that most commercial modern breweries aren't doing right at this point. Um, it, when you look at the base recipe for that, it's it's kind of like a Berliner Weisse style beer, this kind of tart German wheat beer that's made sour by uh, lactobacillus bacteria. So we already had a Berliner that we do all the time. We have a single barrel that has that natural culture, sour culture in it. So when, <clears throat> when David Nilsson, who's a, this local Cicerone, came to us and said, hey, I want to brew this kind of weird style of beer, which is a Lichtenhainer, which is essentially a Berliner Weisse that's brewed with um, oak smoked malt. So it has this kind of smoky flavor in it. When we tried to figure out what the recipe was going to be, you said, well, we already have this Berliner, which is basically the base of this beer. Why don't we just kind of substitute in this oak smoked malt, put it into our barrel, and that's how you do it. So you kind of build off of what you've already done, which is what they did historically too, and what modern brewers do, even with modern technology. So you just, like Dan was saying, you just kind of, you do it enough, you get to kind of know the basics and you can kind of tweak it from there to get different styles, so. And how much is it, um, because we were talking a little bit earlier, again, the coriander ale, um, and then you have an Irish red ale right Mm -hmm. now, and then um, the Berliner. Um, Are these ones that you keep coming back to because they're most successful in the tasting room, or is it just personal favorites, or (laughs) these are just recipes that have worked, let's stick with them. (laughs) It's a little bit of both. Um, When we first started out, we have, have what, now nine draft lines, nine taps that we can occupy for draft beer. When in the beginning, our our goal was just to have two beers, basically. We were going to do this coriander ale, which was this recipe that we found um, that we have an actual recipe for, and then porter, which was arguably the most popular beer style in the world in the mid-1800s. So we had those two kind of flagship beers, and we were like, if we can pull these off, we weren't, this was kind of a grand experiment. We had no idea. The odds were against us to make a product on this equipment that was actually going to be able to be sold to the public um, for that people would actually pay for. We were lucky enough that people did like those two beers. So then we added a third beer and then we added a fourth beer. Um, and then it became the standard that we would only that we would always have at least four beers on tap that were ours. And then we would have fill up the other draft lines with guest beers from other local breweries. We're at the point right now where our beer is popular enough and people are enjoying it enough that we have nine of our own beers on tap. So um, we just keep we keep adding them. If we find one that we think is interesting that we'll also we'll be able to sell to the public, then we'll brew it. The Lichtenhainer was one that it's kind of the newest one that we've done. That's like an actual new recipe that didn't come from three years ago or whatever. But we used to have about four beers on tap and then we would rotate in seasonal beers. Most of those seasonal beers are now popular enough that we keep them all year. The Irish Red Ale, which you mentioned, is probably our most popular beer of 2019, which much to our chagrin as historians is not that great because it's not an actual historic beer style. So, but it's it's one of those things that the public likes it. So, you know, we are a business at the end of the day too. So we'll make stuff that people want, um, that people like. But it's also a talking point for us too, because say, oh, you love this Irish Red Ale. People think it's a historic style. The word Irish, I think, sells it. It just reminds 
reminds them of the old world or something. Um, but it's really a style from the 1950s, not from the 1850s. So is it, and I just thought about this, um, can people only buy Carillon beer here or is it available anywhere else? It is available only here. Um, as Kyle was saying, things have grown. I mean, even the three years I've been here, we've gone from the four taps to, to now nine. And, uh, you know, this year I think, Usually we had slowdowns and stuff like that, but you know, production-wise, we can't, we can't, we can't do it. It's there's no way we can do it. Um, you know, there was points where we were double batching the Irish Red, and it was selling at the rate of like a keg a day and a half. And you know, we're only producing forty-five gallons, so three kegs in a week. So you know, they're tearing through it faster than we could make it. Um, but there are also other inherent problems with packaging what we do. Um, as we've discussed before, it is a live, unfiltered beer. There are those cultures in there, so you run the risk of, of, of what we call bottle bombs in the industry um, where you get a re-fermentation because that bacteria becomes active again. So we can't guarantee that that, that beer isn't going to be stuck somewhere where it's not cold, whether it's in distribution side or once it gets to a store. Um, and then the other thing is, is you know, we did talk about like the mild beer and stuff like that. Eventually the mild beer will become sour. Uh, you're looking at like 90, 65 to 90 days, those cultures will start to appear even if you keep it cold. So you come here and you say, man, I really love that coriander beer. I'm going to pick some of it up in the store, but it could have been sitting there for three months and it's not the same thing that you're going to drink. And then for me, the biggest thing is, is it's really easy for someone to put historically brewed or historic beer on a bottle. What does that mean? Um, you know, you could be sitting at a tap room. Oh, this is historically brewed. What does that mean? But you come here, you get our beer here, you see us working, you see the fires, you know, we're brewing during the day so people can see us now. And they say, this is historically made. Oh, I get it. This is, you know, unique. This is special. So mm -hmm. I, I think so much of it is the experience of coming and seeing just the process that goes into the half pint or pint or whatever people are drinking, um, that you, you know how much labor has gone into it first off. Um, but also the elements that clearly are coming from the 19th century and that kind of, again, the, the way in which you're brewing, um, I'm wondering other discoveries you may have made along the way in that, how it differs from modern brewing. Um, and seasonality is something that I wonder about because we've, we've talked about how ingredients perhaps are seasonal in some way. Um, and oftentimes that's almost maybe artificial in the modern sense of like, oh, pumpkin beer, um, you're putting it out around Halloween or the fall, sure. But traditionally you could have been making that anytime pumpkins were available throughout the winter, even um, when they, whenever they were to hand. Um, is there anything else uh, perhaps that you've discovered in this specific style of brewing, kind of this historical element of brewing, what changes um, or how do you see kind of the beer change, if at all, say between when you're brewing in the summer versus the winter versus the fall or something like that? Yeah, I mean, historically, Beer was definitely being brewed seasonally because just you couldn't brew beer during the extreme weather moment. So in the middle of winter, you can't really make beer in the middle of summer. You can't really make beer. So in the kind of mild weather moments, you were that's when you were brewing. So there was that element historically. We can brew year round at Caroline Brewing Company because we do have an air conditioning system and a heating system. So for for us, the flavor of the beer doesn't change dramatically based on the season because we don't have those temperature changes, which is historically what would have made the beer taste different from batch to batch based on 
temperature fluctuation during the fermentation. Um, that said, I think that there, we might have a batch of porter that pops up in the middle of spring that tastes a little bit tart. Um, and that for whatever reason, probably because of the weather and the season, those cultures are actually more active during that time and have floated into the brewery when people are opening the door and or whatnot, or become active from sitting in the wood on the wood and the brewery and stuff like that. Um, so it, it does change a little bit, but I don't notice a ton of difference in terms of season. You know, you talk about the artificial seasons and stuff like that, but you know, like Kyle was saying there until the advent of mechanized refrigeration, you can only brew during certain times of the year. So, you know, if, if you're brewing late winter, early spring, you might not have enough of that grain. So what vegetables do you have? And that's a seasonal thing. So it's not really, I mean, it's artificial to us now and we think it's hokey, but there's a reason, there's a historical reason for it. And, you know, the, the other thing we don't think about is the, the necessity to finish the beer. So a lot of brewers today would say, oh, if I don't have the malt, then it's not going to finish it. That's not an option for them. We don't think about beer like they did. It's an important food staple for them. Um, so not having the beer to drink is really not an option. So if I've got to use, you know, 40 pounds of potatoes to finish the beer, that's what I'm going to do. And I've found um, in my own research, I have actually found tables where they're saying, you know, grapes and grape sugar and corn and corn sugar and squash. And it's a whole X number of pounds of this to replace missing bushels of grain if you don't have it to complete. Because the thing is, is like Kyle said, you know, we have the canal system, but what if it floods? What if it's dry? What if it doesn't get there? What if the horse gets sick? You know, there's a multitude of factors that keep you from getting, we don't have the, they didn't have the, you know, the consistency of getting product like we do today. So you get a lot of that, that going on in your head when you're working on stuff like that or when people ask questions. Yeah, so it's it's almost the necessity was the mother of invention yeah. that you need this beer. What is to hand that you can use? And obviously, the season is going to dictate a lot of that. Yeah. Of well, this is growing, so or we have remnants of this that we can use. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you, I, I mean, some of the original origin stories of, of porter going back um, to the early nineteenth century, late is that you know a lot of times they're roasting these grains because they're grains that are getting ready to go bad. You know, so what can I do? Well, if I roast it, people won't notice it. And you know, they're using old hops a lot of times in some of those old porters. So how much you know, what's this old three or four year old hop throw it in there? You know, because these guys are looking to make a profit, especially in England at that point. So material going to waste is not an option for them. What can I do so that the public doesn't necessarily know what's going on? Um, so, but you do, you see the beers evolve from there, even that, you know, to worry against the mid 19th century, it's a fairly well-refined product. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. I'd love to know plans for the future, perhaps. Um, are there styles that you haven't yet experimented with that, or it's kind of either a pipe dream or plans are afoot? Um, or is it, you know, 15 draft lines or is it making it available elsewhere or? We, uh... Just to clarify on being able to get our beer elsewhere, we you can take growlers and howlers um, home with you from the brewery. We do have kegs of beer that go out every once in a while to places that we're confident that can accurately represent what we do and how we brewed this beer. Um, so you'll see our beer on tap at a local brewery sometimes, um, but most of it get, does get sold here. In terms of plans for the future, I. I'm the head brewer, so I make these decisions, and I think Dan gets frustrated that I don't let him play as much as he wants to. Um, but in my mind, we have, I don't know, maybe 12 or 13 beers that we brew throughout the year. Um, and 
I have a hard time moving forward without being able to perfect what we've already done or improve upon what we've already done. Um, and just like we've gotten better at building fire, I think we've gotten better at brewing the beer. Um, and so for me, there's always more work to be done from what we've already accomplished um, and improve on that than necessarily trying to spread ourselves very thin and have 15 beers on tap that might not be as good as having nine better brewed beers on tap. So that's kind of where I come at it. Um, I don't think that we need to, I, we're unique enough that I don't think we need to chase trends like a lot of craft, modern craft breweries do. So you'll never see us making an IPA for instance, um, which people don't like necessarily. A lot of people love IPA, but nobody was brewing IPA in Dayton that we can find in 1850. So it doesn't really have a place in our brewery. What we can do is try to tweak some of our recipes to be a little bit more approachable for a modern audience. So we do a pale rye beer, which rye already has kind of an aggressive flavor when you brew with it. So um, we hop that one a little more heavily um, than we do our other beers so that it kind of evokes the idea of an IPA for a lot of people or even a more modern, a modern pale ale, but it's not, we won't fully give into that like, modern trend either. So we, we have gotten into winemaking. So we make wine once a year. Um, we do historic grape varietals. So we've done Concord grape and Catawba grape, which would have been grown in this area. Dayton actually in the 1850s had a huge winery um, called the Kramer Winery and Pleasure Gardens. Um, and it was well known all throughout the country um, for its sparkling Catawba wine. So we do Catawba variety grapes. Again, one that's not very popular among modern wine aficionados, but that's what they were growing in Dayton at that time. Those kind of French varieties weren't, wouldn't grow in the soil here at that time until they learned how to graft onto the native rootstock and things like that. So, um, so we do some wine. Um, there's been talk of a distillery um, at some point in the future, but uh, that's going to be a separate facility. Um, so Dan and I are happy with beer right now and wine occasionally. Um, but yeah, I think the beer is kind of the main focus right now. We are a unique brewery and it brings some craft beer people to Dayton, but we also have, by the end of this year, I think we're going to have 25 uh, craft breweries in Dayton, so all independently owned. Um, so it's it's a big beer destination at this point now. And that's, when we opened up five years ago, I think we were brewery number three in Dayton, three or four. So that expansion we've seen just in the past five years. So it's, it's really kind of neat to see, we're replicating the 1850s, um, which is kind of, sort of the height of the number of breweries in the country um, around that time period. And then um, now we're kind of coming back to it. So, um, and a lot of what modern craft beer makers are making is kind of echoes what was being brewed up until the 1850s when beer became more commercial and became a little more sterile in terms of flavor and things like that. So, um, so these craft brewers think they're doing something new or we think we're doing something new, but, um, they're basically brewing housewife recipes from their homebrew days in the 1830s. So, yeah, it's, it's really more of a, a renaissance than a revolution. Right. Even the business model of the, the hyper local or the local brewery, that's, that's what you would have done. You would have had 18 breweries a day and you would have gone where you wanted to drink that day. Um, and that's pretty much what it is tonight. What do you want? Well, I want you know, something kind of weird and off the wall. I'm going to go to Branch and Bone or I want something, you know, kind of more mainstream. I'm going to go here, X, Y, and Z. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's the, I think that's something else that the the project has at least kind of opened my eyes to is, you know, we've, we've come full circle looking at the things, hey, we're doing it just like they did before for Prohibition. So. Carillon Brewing Company is open seven days a week, both as a restaurant and as a living history museum. 
and if you're interested in seeing some historical brewing in action, make sure to drop by on Tuesday through Saturday, when Kyle and Dan and the rest of the team will be in-house making more, of course, historical ale. You might also get a chance to see some of the bread being made in-house, either the whole wheat spent grain sourdough or the French-style white both of which you can buy and enjoy either in the restaurant or to take home with you, along with some hand-churned butter made right in the museum as well. Because why wouldn't you? A big thank you to head brewer Kyle Spears and assistant brewer Dan Laro from Carillon Brewing Company for taking me on a tour of their fantastic historical brewery and talking to me about everything from how to make a proper fire to spent grain bread to Ohio's forgotten wine industry. Learn more about Carillon Brewing Company by visiting carillonbrewingco.org. You can also find out about all the other offerings at Carillon Historical Park by visiting daytonhistory.org. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson. Our digital director and photographer is Mike Port. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Feast underscore podcast, where we'll put up some photos and even a few videos we took while visiting Carillon back in December. You can also follow us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter to get all the news directly at thefeastpodcast.org. We'll be back soon with another great meal that made history. I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.